Hello and welcome to the Particular Good Podcast. I said particular good, not particularly good. It's a name, not a claim. I'm Charles Hughes Huff, Assistant Professor of Sacred Scripture at St. Bernard School of Theology and Ministry. We're here in Rochester, New York, but we have campuses also in Buffalo, Syracuse, and Albany. Today, I'm very excited to welcome Zena Hitz on to Particular Good Podcast. Zena has written a book called Lost in Thought, The Hidden Treasures of an Intellectual Life. And this book is fantastic. I have purchased this book twice for myself and once for someone else. I have read this book twice in two different forms, and I have been recommending it to everyone I can find to recommend it to. And now I'm going to turn around and recommend it to you, my listeners at the Particular Good Podcast, with great joy, because I really enjoyed this book when I picked it up. It gave me not only an interesting book to read, something I wanted to look into for the podcast, but also a way of understanding my life, my own life, both my past, both in a uh, cult training center when I was a kid and in graduate school, and now as a teacher and professor, uh, trying to give other folks the best tools they can have to develop their own intellectual life. Uh, She helped me integrate these things into a coherent perspective through many beautiful examples of people following their own intellectual interests throughout history and literature uh, in a variety of different ways. Zena talks about the good and bad uses of the intellect and encourages the use of the intellect for loving things themselves, particular goods as an avenue into a real expression of a more universal good of human nature. So Zena's uh, whole approach is exactly the approach of what we're trying to accomplish on this podcast and um, at St. Bernard School of Theology and Ministry, where we're devoted to the Catholic intellectual tradition, broadly speaking, offering courses in philosophy, theology, Christianity and the fine arts, and a variety of other emphases. All of our courses can be taken entirely online and... We are very pleased to have this kind of discussion regularly on the podcast and other events around the school. Without further ado, I now turn to the interview with Zena Hitz herself as we discuss Lost in Thought, The Hidden Treasures of an Intellectual Life. Um, Here at the Particular Good Podcast, we see particular goods as avenues into shared, uh, shared understanding of the good, which is a point you make very well in your book when you write, perhaps we ought to think of intellectual life as having not so much an object as a direction toward the general past, the specific, the universal beyond the particular, the reality behind the illusion, the beauty beneath the ugliness, the peace underneath violence. We seek the pattern in instances, the instance hidden by the pattern. So in your book on the common good of the intellectual life, you write about many examples of people's intense love of a wide range of particular goods, from birds to books to stars, which you understand as of a piece sharing a direction, each forms of an intellectual life seeking a pattern. What drew you to this approach and what do you think it communicates? Well, I, I think really, if there was one thing I was particularly at pains to communicate, it was that this thing, intellectual life, learning for its own sake, is uh, a human good. It's part of being a human being. It belongs in some way or other to everyone. Mm. And it, it's uh, subject to uh, human imagination, human, act, human creativity. 
the the quirks of individuals have a huge shape on it. So it's I wanted to capture on the one hand that universality, the sense in which intellectual life is really for everyone. And on the other hand, that freedom that's in it, that is that it's it's not one thing. It's mm. it's not a uh, uh, a book that once you read it, once you've got it memorized, you're an intellectual. You know, it's yeah. there's no there's no teacher's edition to the intellectual life, not a human one anyway. I mean, there's a divine mind, but yeah, uh, that's um, that's accessible only through this sort of thing, only through. Uh, our particular paths through life and the thinking that we do along them. So uh, that was why I wanted to cast as broad a net as I could to uh, honor people who are doing intellectual work without knowing it Mm -hmm. uh, or without fully valuing it, thinking of it as being a bit of a waste of time. Yeah. You know, to, to go out into the, go out on the weekends and take pictures of wildlife. Oh no, that's a waste of time. I can't do that. Uh, so I, I wanted to honor that. And then I also wanted to address academics so that they could see that it's, it's this that really grounds academic work ultimately, not because everything that an academic does has to be comprehensible to everyone. That's, that wouldn't work. That's not what academia does but it has to ultimately find its way out Mm -hmm. into an individual human being's understanding or flourishing. And um, I think we lose sight of that. I think we, we see sometimes academic exercises as being, uh, you know, wrapped up in themselves and not, Mm -hmm. not as reaching out to the human good. So those were the reasons why I cast such a wide net and why I sought out as, uh, as many examples as I could uh, to, to try to get that universality and that, um, and that freedom. Good. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, the freedom aspect is well said. This is what I so enjoyed about what you wrote about was like, here's someone who just fell totally in love with looking at the stars or, uh, the tracking the peregrine hawk freedom, which you talk about, um, coming out of a sense of withdrawal, which I'm going to, return to. Um, When you talk about an intellectual life and all of us being able to access it, what is it? What is an intellectual life uh, for you? So for for my students to say, what's what's an intellectual life? And can a person foster it without needing to be an an intellectual? Yeah. So for the latter question, definitely not. You don't have to be a quote unquote intellectual. You don't have to be a professional. You don't need a separate set of skills. You can, it can be like, uh, I think we think about music or athletics this way, right? These are things which ordinary people do at a, uh, in whatever way fits into their lives. You know, there's Mm -hmm. the Saturday afternoon baseball league of, you know, middle-aged guys. (laughs) (laughs) Or there's, um, uh, there's, People who have a piano in their house who, you know, they play it every now and they play Christmas carols at Christmas. Intellectual life is like that. That is, it's, yeah. it, it's something that can be taken up in little pieces. And it's, it, it gives, human, like those other things, it gives life texture, meaning, depth, um, points of fulfillment. Now, that's not really getting into the question, which is what is intellectual life? And I, I don't give a strict definition 
-hmm. in part because it's it's defining it would be in a bit in tension with my previous objective of trying to say it everywhere. So it's learning for its own sake. Mm -hmm. I would say I can say that much. So it's not learning as a means to an end. It's not quite this. So it's not um, figuring out how to rewire your basement. That's instrumental mm -hmm. use of your intellect. It's not studying for uh, a new line of work. That's an instrumental use of your intellect. It's, it's, it, it involves contemplation and savoring and just following things where they go and doing that as a form of leisure, as a form of um, resting in the activity that you're doing in a way that feels like a culmination of something, yeah. a culmination of one's life in one way or another. It could be one among many such culminations, but it's um, it's it's got to have that flavor to it. Yeah, uh, it it features study, reading, reflection, looking at nature. That's some of its characters' activities. Um, and as I say in what the part that you quoted, it's it's more easily characterized by direction than by objects. Mm -hmm. So. So you can, there are intellectual, typically intellectual objects that can be approached in a actually not particularly deep way. Mm -hmm. um, and there are things which are not typical intellectual objects, which can be. And um, that's why the question about direction is important. It's, it's the habit of mind or the heart where you're reaching out for reality, you're reaching for your own growth. Um, and that's hard to define, um, but it, it is, I think, uh, yeah, it's important for me to be a bit general so that, yeah. so that I'm pulling in as many people as possible. And I, I think it's, it shouldn't be too easy to define these things uh, because it's, it's too fundamental to who we are. Yeah. So you, it's, I've sort of tried to train myself to recognize it and then to try to just work my way out, try to communicate a bit of what I see and hope that others will see along with me and reflect along with me. What do they think intellectual life is? What, what seems like them to be uh, a deep and worthwhile activity, something that could, your life might actually culminate in in some way? Yeah, uh, I really like that. I like this emphasis on um, learning for its own sake toward a idea of the good, I guess, or as you're, you're maybe not even defining it that, that narrowly, but something that entrances someone as the end of their life. Is this, yeah. I think of academic publishing, which is designed to produce rigorous scholarship and can, of course, and is always used or often used by people who are in love with what they study for its own sake and then seeking to share that with others, right? And to publish it. But then also it can turn, uh, turn itself onto the academic a little bit, uh, where suddenly you're thinking not like, what is it that I'm loving, that I'm researching, that I'm, it's more like, what will everyone think about this? Did I miss a footnote? Um, how will this be received? Is this original? Will this make my career? Those are, those are ways of instrumentalizing, right? Yeah, the, the things I see in my experience in the academic publishing world is, in a way, two dangers. One is uh, because publications matter for hiring, for sometimes for grad school admissions these days, everything yeah. is so crazy. <laughs> and grad school admissions for uh, hiring, 
for promotion, for tenure, for uh, et cetera, and for prestige within the field, that it that it becomes latched onto those ends rather than something that you do because it's worthwhile. That is because mm-hmm. you wanted to really figure something out. So that's a tension I think that's natural. I mean, not not good, but sort of built into the the structure of academic life in some way. And I think it's gotten worse over the years. So as um, administrators have gained more power over colleges, they're more interested in metrics, they're more interested in numbers. And so numbers of publications become important. And the idea that you might've written one article over many years that was really just communicated exactly what you wanted to communicate uh, that's much. That's a luxury that many people feel they can't afford. So it's it's gotten disconnected from intellectual activity in a way. That that's one problem. And then I think another is that, um, ironically enough, th- there's a prestige concern, which is how can I use these publications to advance my ranking in the academic world? Maybe for uh, reasonable reasons. Maybe past that as a kind of compulsion or addiction or a, a way to preoccupy oneself. But the the truth is that what's helped me in scholarship is thinking about my my scholar colleagues as people with whom I have a conversation Mm -hmm. that I like to work out my thinking with. Yeah. There's a, a sense of a community, which is, to me, a healthy mode of using your mind in the company of others for the sake of others. Um, and you can lose track of that too. You can end up writing things to sort of check a box, you know, um, mm-hmm. mark something off the CV and you're not, you're not connecting necessarily with the object of your interest. And you're also not connecting with the other people in your community who might, mm-hmm. who might like that. So anyway, those are the problems I see um, with, with uh, academic research and it's, it's, it's ironic threats to intellectual life. It's, it's great. That's wonderful. Thank you. Um, thank you. Yeah. Um, in the book, you talk about uh, the importance of withdrawal from the world in order to find a needed refuge. So academia is not the only place where we can find ends to latch onto that aren't quite the object of our intellectual interest or the goal of expressing our our love for this object. Um, and you say we need to withdraw from the world to find a space where study, learning about loving some particular good is done for its own sake and not for prestige or any other end. Uh, you point to St. John of the Cross as a theorist of this withdrawal, which points not so much to deprivation as to detachment from, from things. Uh, can you say more about how withdrawal is important for you and for others pursuing an intellectual life? So the it's the way I put it is it's withdrawal from the world where the world is in italics or scare quotes or whatever. It's a term of art that, um, you know, I'm borrowing from the Gospel of John or mm-hmm. related texts. Right. So where the world is the locus of competition. Mm-hmm social competition, the, the, the space of uh, especially status, status and power mm-hmm. rankings. And I think that basically everyone is a victim of the world in this sense. So mm-hmm. I'm particularly interested in stories about 
people who are on what is technically the losing end of the world. So Mm -hmm. uh, working people, uh, minorities, outsiders, people with disabilities, people Mm -hmm. who by some measure have lost the game of the world or are losing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And for them, uh, there's many stories I dig up in my book from some of them are fictional, some of them are historical of people in those circumstances who found a refuge in intellectual life. So Mm -hmm. if part of the idea of withdrawal is in a way connected to that idea of a refuge, uh, an inner world, an inner space where one is independent from uh, that that sphere of social competition. And so where one can find the dignity that's denied one there. So my favorite stories are ones about people who, like I say, are, are uh, getting some hard edge of the world and find their dignity by withdrawing from the world and finding this source of uh, meaning and value within themselves through intellectual life. But I also think that the winners are also demeaned by the world. Mm-hmm. So you're not, your value doesn't lie in a big salary, a big name, a high prestige job, having checked all the boxes on, you know, middle-class American life. Mm-hmm. Uh, your value doesn't, doesn't lie in that. So even if yeah. you achieve them, and even if you receive all the fruits of achieving them, which are substantial, you're, you're still being demeaned. Yeah. Uh, so I, um, it's funny. I this is a story that's not in the book, but it's a story I love. Uh, I I know I know a guy who was working on Wall Street uh, in New York, went through a divorce, and then um, pulled himself up in the New York Public Library hmm. and read everything about Homer, taught himself Greek, wow. read all the Homeric works, <laughs> read all the secondary literature. So spent years just steeping himself in this stuff. Mm-hmm. That's someone who in some sense was riding high in the world and Mm -hmm. just needed to be in a different kind of a a space. Mm -hmm. That's, that's what I mean by withdrawal. I mean, finding that space where one is not subject to the the realm of social competition, which demeans us and Mm -hmm. instrumentalizes us. Excellent. Thank you. That's, um, that's, that's wonderful. And you, you, you talked about Malcolm X in the book. You talked about uh, Gramsci, these, these folks who found, intellectual life, even in prison. Um, okay. Did you mention um, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, uh, where he talks about this very thing in, in the context of the Holocaust and the, and the, and the camps? Um, that came to mind, I know, when I was thinking about yeah. this. But even in the worst situations of the, where you've lost completely, this yeah. is available to one. Um, which isn't to say that one ought to lose like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's that's where I brought in St. John of the Cross as yeah. to help me help me to explain that you don't have to uh, get yourself sent to prison in order to uh, withdraw from the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do it right in the middle of the world. Yeah. It's an inner journey it's not the it's it's honestly helpful to you um uh take advantage of the inevitable failures of 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 your life or the the moments of isolation or whatever it is that happens to you i mean no one's life is is going to be seamless Mm -hmm. uh 
Uh, so taking advantage of those moments to find something within yourself is very good. But yes, I, I, uh, I have a special, um, partly because I had some ex very formative experiences in prison ministry and in teaching in prison. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I have a love for stories about prisoners who in, in sometimes really brutal circumstances just reach into themselves and find the dignity that is being uh, taken away from them yeah. by everything yeah. around them. And yes, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, I mentioned it briefly, I think in the book, very briefly, but yeah. uh, that's another, yeah, it's a perfect example of, you know, you, you, you know, you look at a sunset and you know you're in Auschwitz mm -hmm. that sunset somehow connects you with a reality that's um grander and better and restorative in some way from the world that's around you not it's um you know that's dark right it's mm -hmm. yeah. uh, it's it doesn't fix anything no <laughs> <laughs> but it but it nonetheless it's it's a way that people preserve their humanity in those circumstances yeah 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 and it's um and it, it's interesting to think about how some of this stuff, it's not the object. We've talked about this. Um, it is the object in a kind of way, but it's not the object in another kind of way. Like uh, people who are doing the oppressing in some cases are reading books that we would find uh, very enriching for intellectual life. And yeah. so and we can't go to someone who's being oppressed and say, you would be fine if you just, you know, <laughs> looked at a sunset and read Homer. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but it's true, nonetheless, in human experience that yeah. people do find internal liberation in these moments through intellectual life. Yeah. Well, I, I also think, um, you know, the people who are concerned about matters of justice, moving oppress removing oppression helping the oppressed and so on it's worth remembering that liberation involves a full human life mm -hmm. it doesn't it's not just you know getting your universal basic income or you know getting your food on the table and getting your housing and or even um just legal structures those yeah. are all means to an end mm -hmm. And the, the full flourishing of a human being is in, you know, art and creativity and worship and thinking and reflection and intellectual life. And those are the fruits of justice and that they, they, you can't postpone them. You can't postpone yeah. their pursuit until you put everything else in place. You have to have those in mind all along and, and, and cultivate them as best you can. So that, that I think is my, my sense of how this fits into the thinking of someone who might be directly concerned with matters of liberation or yeah absolutely yeah that's good because there are different ways of different angles of viewing the human person as just a economic reality that can be the sort of blind capitalistic ignoring of justice but also if we just end there with uh we ought to have every person with a meal yeah um, that's also you know kind of reductionistic in a certain way Although I'm, I'm all about giving him a person a meal. <laughs> no, 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 again, so am I. So it's, um, you know, and I, I think this is where being a person of faith actually has a particular advantage because you, you know, if you, you trust, right, God has put you in a particular place with a particular, particular set of goods uh, yeah. <laughs> um, to, to serve and to love in the way that you can do it. Um, so that, you know, you're not, 
look, my, my, ser- my service is teaching uh, and some writing, but mainly teaching. Uh, that doesn't mean I don't think people should eat. Right. It's, it's just the particular, <laughs> you know, the, the way that I have discerned I can serve best given what I've received and where I am in the world. And, you know, that, that kind of discernment is very important. And that kind of trust that we all have a, a vocation to serve in some way. And we have to keep in mind all of the needs of a human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And serve even just a part, it seems to me. Yeah, that's good. I, I love that. love that very much. Um, I want to follow up with this, this question on politics. You critique the Academy in this book for instrumentalizing the intellectual life, which is what we've mentioned so far, uh, various ways that we turn intellectual life into a means of prestige. But also, this, this question that we've been talking about, a political liberation, you've addressed this already, but I, I know that um, you've gotten some pushback on this. Uh, as the book has come out, because you say in very bold fashion, like the intellectual life shouldn't be turned into an instrumental, uh, an instrument for politics and even good politics. And that's that's, a, that's the wrong end for it. Um, even if you like liberating politics, it's not the end of the intellectual life. So can you talk a little bit more about what it's been like to, to receive critiques and, back, you know, what that reception has felt like? Uh, and if, have you learned from that or is there what, you know, all of that? Yeah. I haven't learned a thing. No. <laughs> um, well, it, the truth is the pushback has not been as strong as I thought it would be. Uh, I, I expect this was the avid, the area where I expected the most pushback and you're, I was deliberately bold and provocative in part because I thought we need to think a bit more carefully about this. Um, and it gets, I think, tiring for people to be timid and to not want a rocky boat. <laughs> so I, I, there's, and I think the question is subtle because uh, there's more than one way of thinking about politics. Uh, there's the politics in a way we were just talking about politics, right? Mm-hmm. So what's, how do we love and serve one another in community in a way that's about politics and intellectual life in under, in my understanding of it is right in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. It's not separated from that at all. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's, it's, a good to be developed for others and it's mm-hmm. a good to develop in oneself. And then there are bonds of community bonds of service uh, that go between people of all kinds in that sense, it's political. So the, um, but I, what I do think is bad is to reduce intellectual life to something directed at producing just outcomes or just agendas or narrow political ends is what I would call it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, on the on the one hand, there are stories which I have collected, and some of my colleagues have collected also, of uh, people from oppressed classes who find liberation through study and reading. Mm-hmm. So, if you look at the um, the great Black American leaders, virtually every one of them had a sustained encounter with old books that they read for their own sake mm-hmm. and uh you know it's malcolm x reading the whole prison library that's a very dramatic example but uh frederick Douglass, who taught himself to read and then mm-hmm. uh, you know read 
uh, ancient orations uh, or, you know, Du Bois and uh, Anna Juliet Cooper, who, who write about how they really found their humanity through mm-hmm. reading and study, especially the classics. So if we think about those stories, you are finding something like liberation, but it's not the, the course materials, so to speak, aren't tailored to that end. Mm-hmm. That is, they're not reading books about how to become liberated. Mm-hmm. They're just doing the thing that makes you a free human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I, it's, it's partly that. Now, I'll also say this. So my objection is to, roughly speaking, it's actually not just the left. It's also the right. So there's, there's two sides of it. There's social justice-driven intellectual life. And then there's also reaction to social justice-driven. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, how can we, you know, how can we produce more Republican voters? You know, like, let's yeah. design a curriculum, right? Um, and I, I think that both of those things are bad they're they're undermining intellectual life as a common ground mm-hmm. between various kinds of people. And they're also reducing the richness and the creativity and the freedom and the imagination of this thing, which is partly political and partly not political. It might be about bugs and it might be about plants and it might be about stars. It might be about metaphysics. It could be all kinds of things which which don't have any obvious political point. Yeah. So uh, on the one hand, I want to say that's bad. On the other hand, I, and this is a way in which I think my thinking has developed, not under pressure, but just because of my own thinking about the, the current situation that we're in. There's one thing I would say. I, I think that on the one hand, based on the things I've just been talking about, politics is one thing. Social justice is one thing. I'm for social justice. I don't think it's the same thing as intellectual life. And I don't think you have to subjugate the one to the other to care about social justice. I think that there's some healthiness in keeping the spheres a bit separate. But I also think that what I what I write and say now is a bit more political because I think I've come to see that we we live in a very increasing an increasingly inegalitarian world. Mm -hmm. That is a world where fewer and fewer people have more and more of the rights and privileges and powers that others don't have. Mm -hmm. And that's extended in a way that frightens me into the realm of education mm-hmm. and to the point where I feel like there's a few people, very the richest people in the world get to decide what counts as education for everyone else. And they're going to design it in their own interests. That is mm-hmm. going to be job training to work in their companies. Uh, yeah, <laughs> basically. Uh, and I think that's very, very frightening, very dangerous, very much a political problem. And so part of my concern now is, you know, bringing out a bit that that what we used to call liberal education, education for freedom is an egalitarian education, education for everyone Mm -hmm. is really an important resource in this current situation. That is, if the more that we can defend ourselves against an oligarchic view of education the better things will be. Uh, yeah. so, that's a, so that's a way in which my thinking is developed. I've thought, you know what, we have this very, very serious political situation. And in fact, education, intellectual life is important for that. And that's not for an agenda. Again, it's just, we have to be free human beings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have to, we have to liberate ourselves from, from the attempts to determine who we are by, by a few wealthy people. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that's well said. I, I watched this happen 
a little bit at uh, the University of Chicago, where I know you spent some time in grad school there too. Yeah. Uh, and I was there um, in grad school and working as a resident head in college for six years. And during that time, that six years, we the school, the college, went from, you know, some modest 17 or 18 on the U.S. News and World Report list to number three. And um, the Common App came in and the Institute of Politics uh, after President Obama took office, his uh, campaign manager started that in Hyde Park. And suddenly the school that had been the home of the Midwest's biggest nerds, you know, <laughs> started to expand that to some of uh, the nation's wealthiest, most elite people, you know, and who were also very gifted. There's not a question of dumbing right. it down or anything, but it's, it really did change the, the vibe uh, to some degree. Yeah. Where there are many more students in my house very concerned about access questions and internships this summer and the you know White House internships in the summer of her first year. It's interesting to watch that oligarchic expression come out. Yeah, I think it's honestly, it's it's happening in some way everywhere. I mean, I, there's even in a little place like St. John's, which has a very strong culture. When I was a student, you know, most, most of the students were, uh, there were some kids that we knew were rich and there were some kids that, you know, we were poor. Mm-hmm. But we were able to build a community where that's those differences somehow dissipated a bit. But yeah. I see my students now that the the students who are poor have to work more than they would have in my day. So they're mm-hmm. they're putting in all these hours trying to to cover their educational expenses, which which then you know means they're further removed from the campus community. Mm-hmm. And the kids with more resources kind of build a different kind of life for themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. very, dis- I find it very disturbing in a small oh. place, you know, that's, so it's, it's something, I mean, I'm not the only person who's thinking about this in our institution. It's hard, it's hard to know because in a way the, the forces can be, can feel like they're a bit beyond um, control of uh, particular policies in particular. Anyway, it's very, it's very hard. And it's, I think it's, I think it's honestly every sector. Yeah. In this country, you know, in, in, in other countries too, where it's just increasing anxiety, increasing sort of precarity on all the levels below the very top one and, and divisions that are opening up. And it's, it's hard. Yeah. It makes me feel older than I am. I feel like I'm a little too young to be saying like, oh, in my day. Unfortunately, that is true. Here we are. Yeah. Um, one thing I really liked about this book was uh, your talking about a contrast between the love of spectacle and um, seriousness of thought using the example of the young and foolish versus the older and wiser St. Augustine, among other things. But uh, you talk about the love of spectacle or curiositas. Here you are writing a book about the intellectual life, and you're giving us a warning about curiositas. Uh, So what is it and what how can it inhibit actually our intellectual life? Well, I can say, but first of all, about what why I took it up in a way. There's more than one reason uh, I got interested in Augustine's. Augustine came into the book as an example of someone who began as using as using the intellect for instrumental ends, and then mm-hmm. through his conversion, is able to do something different, something uh, richer and more profound, and more for its own sake. But then I got interested in curiositas in part because I think. 
there's an anxiety that haunts many religious people, especially those with intellectual bents, that somehow the intellect can't be totally free. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that, that there's something wrong with thinking. And it, it's different in different denominations. Of course, it's, it's stronger in certain Protestant traditions than it is, say, in the Catholic tradition. Mm-hmm. Even in the Catholic tradition, I mean, curiositas is often interpreted as you know, keep your mind at God. You know? <laughs> don't don't do a lot of pointless science. So yeah, exactly. Read your catechism. Um, and don't, you know, don't just pick up the Bible. You know, this is our Catholic thing, right? You can't just pick up the Bible. You need formation first. So you don't just think the wrong thing. So so there's this sense that the intellect can't be free. And I I I wanted to to just find out where the boundaries of that were for myself because I'm also a convert. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and to see, especially Augustine is thought of as being severe on this. And so part of what I'm doing in the book is defending a view of Augustine where his criticisms of curiositas of, of the vice of the intellect are, I think a bit narrower than, than people think they are mm-hmm. and then, translating it as the, the love of spectacle is meant to, to capture that. It looks like what he's really concerned about is something that we would call distraction or entertainment or lurid fascination ways of engaging our minds, which are not directed at growth Mm -hmm. to put it simply. It's often repetitive activity. So one example is Augustine's friend, Alepius who becomes addicted to watching the gladiators. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, you don't learn something new every time you go to watch the gladiators. They do the same thing over and over again. <laughs> and, you know, you may have stopped and looked carefully at one bad car accident, you know, but, you know, if you do it more than once, you're not learning exactly. You're, you're just, you're just thrill seeking in some mm-hmm. way. Yeah. So I, it's my understanding that that's really what curiositas is. And that can be. So the pursuit of, say, scientific inquiry can be like that. So if you're if you're learning facts for the experience of knowing, mm-hmm. you know, as part of a social competition, I think that's curiositas. Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. that just that that sense that you're knowing is a bit like the thrill seeking of uh, the looking at the car accident. So the love of spectacle is the problem. And the alternative, so curiositas is in the later tradition contrasted with studiositas, mm-hmm. which is also a distinction that precedes Augustine and uh, goes back into the Roman, into Roman philosophy. Yeah. But, you know, if you call that studiousness, I think that doesn't sound right. It's seriousness. It's really seeing your learning as, as central to your growth as a human being. I think if, if you see your learning that way, then then your mind can be free what what's the danger is for us as human beings is that we're always drawn back into this thrill seeking we we don't it's hard for us to encounter reality it's it's painful yeah it's hard for us to grow it's uncomfortable it's humiliating so our resistance to these things sort of forces us back pushes us back into exercising our faculties in this kind of wheel spinning, pointless way mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. that can also be, you know, even in the long term, self-destructive in certain ways. So that's yeah. my thought about what curiositas is and for Augustine and uh, what I think he thinks can be the antidote to it.
Yeah, that's good. Another question about the intellect and ways it can go awry. You know, this, this, when you were talking about knowing for the sake of knowing, you know, like you're just trying to memorize facts. There is a, I think it's basically a self-defensive mechanism, but that um, I have found myself, especially in grad school doing, which was a sort of constant knowingness that was mostly used to dismiss, you know, to, to have already arrived to, to like, oh, this guy, or oh my gosh, can you believe that? Um, where you, you, you do have a, a knowledge that you're working with, but it's constantly being used to sort of sardonically, almost glibly dismiss whole trains of thought. Does that have a name? <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I, I've put it in the way that I've uh, defined curiositas. I put it in there because it's connected to the know-it-all syndrome. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. As yeah. knowing, knowing for the sake of social competition, because that's because that is actually what's going on, right? So it's yeah. It's um people are taking the shortcut to advancing themselves, which is mm-hmm. putting down something else. Yeah. Um. And uh, so that's why it's often it's very common in graduate school because you're you're young and you're more insecure, especially. So, you yeah. you know, you, you like, oh, well, we all know that this is bad. And what you're really saying is if I know that that's bad, that means that I must be good. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, a, it's, a, it's again, it's a shortcut. A shortcut that doesn't, it's also ineffective. I don't mean it's like, <laughs> I don't yeah, mean yeah. it actually <laughs> No, no, yeah. <laughs> but it, it does, um, the, the real path to being better is the hard work of learning something. It's, it's, not, it's not just, you know, saying, oh, that stinks, you know. Yep. You know, oh, that's, look how stupid that was. Yeah. <laughs> that's not, that actually doesn't have anything to do with learning anything. So you, mm-hmm. it's, but it's, of course, it's very typical uh, characteristic of, of people in intellectual bent. Like you, they, they, they're often very competitive people and they're yeah. often this particular type of insecurity and they want to constantly talk down in order to, in order to avoid really learning something, which yeah. is again, the only way that you really advance. And it's very difficult. And I, I, I totally sympathize. Like in a way I love learning with anything. Another way I think to myself, ah, uh, you know, I'm teaching Faraday right now. It's very difficult. This is, is one of the great scientists of electricity. Mm. And on a part of me, really, I love it. I really want to go learn it. But then there's just this, it's like, oh, do I really have to? <laughs> do I have to sit down for hours with that book? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it'd be much easier for me just to say like, you know, that's, that's stupid stuff. <laughs> you know, it's not really worth it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the contemporary science is really more, you know, compelling. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anything that will keep me out of that. So that, that's my understanding of, of what's going on there. Oh, that's good. That's very helpful. Thank you. Um, it feels to me, I, I love that you're contrasting this with intellectual freedom, because I think what happens, what I experienced in myself and in others in grad school is that... Um, once you're in that habit of finding ways to dismiss people, you start to coalesce around certain right opinions and it is a shortcut. And then you're actually kind of upholding a certain orthodoxy, which that, you know, horrifying thought, but, but like, that's kind of what you're doing. You know, there are the right views and the wrong views. And it's enough to just say, oh my gosh, this person, 
uh, doesn't accept the documentary hypothesis, you know, in my case. Or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's enough. You don't have to say anything more, you know. <laughs> it's really true that the, um, and that's not brought out in the book, although I, I wish I could, but I mean, it's both things are there, but they're not put together. But social competition and conformity and gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. uh, these are three things which are very, very closely linked yeah. and really rampant in academia. And quite a lot of, I think, it's something I've been thinking about recently, quite a lot of the, the reactions to what's so-called, you know, woke culture on college campuses, political correctness on college campuses, a lot of the reactions are actually to that, uh, its use as gatekeeping or conformity. Mm -hmm. Not the content of the ideas, you yeah, know, it's, yeah, yeah. It's that people who don't really believe the ideas or, or see what they, why they might really matter saying like, hey, oh, you know, you, you use this word, which I find really problematic. So I don't think, I don't think you can be in, you know, my seminar, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not sure you belong here. Do you belong here? No. So that, I think it's competition, conformity, gatekeeping. These are all things which are very serious difficulty yeah. and they happen all across the that they do they happen overtly in woke culture yeah. Yeah. but they happen in things that are far more trivial uh, as well right. Yeah. That's, right. <laughs> that's right no it's it's true it's um that's it's that that's the central phenomenon it's not the the whatever the, the so-called intellectual political moral uh content it's just something grabbed on as a rationalization for, mm -hmm. for, you know, yeah, shoring up conformity. Yep. Uh, and it's, um, I think it, it's, it's difficult right now because I think that the, there's, there's so much fear in academia um, mm -hmm. because the, the institutions are in rough shape. And so uh, the environments where I think that I've been in that have been healthiest have been ones which felt most confident in in their future and what they were doing so that people can relax mm -hmm. you, know, you know they know they know that they have a future they know they're supported by their communities and then then the mind can kind of go its own way and you can accept people who are saying things that are a bit imaginative a bit unusual yeah i i'm of fear is 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 making things particularly difficult we really have to fight to um to preserve environments where where people can can think freely and be creative and be imaginative and can take chances and can disagree with one another, not in a way that's confrontational or or uh, disrespectful right. at all, but in a way where we can really learn from one another. Mm -hmm. So it's it's anyway, and I I think it's it just goes it goes across ideological bounds, it goes across social bounds. It's 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 a deep deep human difficulty. That yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think at the end, you're right. It's extremely important. Um, and you see it bearing fruit when it happens. Um, the the, the feel-good stories start just happening. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> they do. I mean, so. No, and I, I uh, that's, I, uh, that was really a lot of what I wanted to do in the book was to tell encouraging stories. Yeah. I, I think it's easy to despair. Mm -hmm. current moment it's easy to to say we've been on these steel tracks of decline and there's no way back. <laughs> <laughs> and i remember when i was a student and uh, <laughs> so it's easy to do that but but it's not helpful we, we we really have to to reach into the past and and 
find resources there to reimagine what's what to do now and what to do in the future so that these these practices and habits and traditions can be can be carried on and and it's amazing how relevant some of them really are which is it should be obvious but i guess um i i read the confessions just before i read your book and augustine's life when you start to really sort of stop and think of what, what he was doing, what he was up against, and his particular academic path and this conversion, he was dealing with the same kind of stuff that I'm dealing with in a lot of ways. And um, it's, it's very different cultures, but it's so relevant, actually. No, it's, uh, it's actually incredible, I think, how, how close he is to us. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I also find it incredible every time I read the confessions. Now it's, it's something that I've ended up teaching with some regularity and mm-hmm. going back to a number of times. It's an extremely intricate book. Yeah. Uh, it's a real, I mean, there's a reason why we call it a masterpiece. It's just every time you pick it up, there's, there's another layer that emerges from it. And he, um, yeah, he lives in a time of imperial decline, you know, the the uh, sack of Rome, a time when the ordinary institutions were falling apart. And he, yeah, and he's he's very much like us. Uh, he, you know, he's ambitious. He wants to get ahead. His mom annoys him. You know, and then he just gets kind of walloped um, by, by his attempts to you know, seek something like wisdom and something like meaning. And, yeah. and then he, you know, he, he finds a path out And the style too, I think is very contemporary. That is he, he, this reporting from personal experience is very much a feature of contemporary life. I mean, I, yeah. um, I was on, uh, <laughs> as you were about to ask you about this, I was on clubhouse recently for the first time, which is oh my gosh. new social media app. Yeah. Where, yeah. Uh, I had this this conversation with MC Hammer at his invitation. Oh my gosh! This is yeah. I know. I can hear all about this. I didn't. I actually didn't realize this about the clubhouse. Yeah, yeah. It was in the clubhouse. So they what? But part of what's interesting about clubhouse is that it's it's very much a culture of personal narratives. Like you say, this is who I am. This is what I've seen. This is my experience. And so I'm going to, and that was, of course, also something that I was trying to do in my own book because I, I felt, you know, past generations may have had uh, something like professorial authority. They're like, I, professor, mm-hmm. I'll tell you what learning is and why it matters. And I, I felt that that wasn't available to me. It's gone. Maybe, I, maybe it never would have been my style anyway. Yeah. But uh, it's, if I wanted it, I couldn't find it. It's not there in the culture anymore. So this is the way that you communicate. You say, this is who I am. This is what happened to me. This is where I come from. And let me, let me describe my experience to you. And that it's, that's something Augustine knew. Yeah. It's it's very powerful. Yeah. That's good. So I got it. I got to ask about this then. So when I first encountered you on Twitter last fall, you were occasionally shout out MC Hammer. You seem to be an MC Hammer fan. Right. But now you are an MC Hammer friend together <laughs> on social media. He's tweeting your book. That's what I saw was he was tweeting yeah. your book. Uh, now, I guess you were on Clubhouse with him. So, yeah. Why, like, how long have you liked MC Hammer? Why also, as a child of the 80s, was really into? <laughs> <laughs> and how did you two connect? And what's going on with that? 
Well, uh, so I'll, I'll say this, actually. MC Hammer's hits fell in a time when I was a bit out of the loop in pop music. So Me it, too. Fell, <laughs> it fell in between uh, a time when, so there was a time when I was, so, you know, the earlier, early rap, the first BC Boys record, Run DMC, and that, and, um, you know, the Michael Jackson records from that time period, that I was all on for. Yeah. Like, went into high school and into a different world. And then I, I got to know all the hip hop of the later nineties, mm-hmm. but MC Hammer was always a bit out of my purview. It wasn't. So I, um, you know, I, of course I knew his name. He's extremely famous, but I, so it wasn't, it wasn't his music initially. What happened was he, he was, I, I went on Twitter last year to, because I had this book coming out and I thought it would be good which it has been actually is as bad as social media is. I've, I've met a lot of amazing people and made connections. And I think people have found the book who wouldn't have otherwise found it. And uh, so I'm delighted actually with how I've used it apart from it. I've spent too much time on it, but apart from that. (laughs) Uh, So uh, anyway, at some point I noticed that he MC hammer was interested in philosophy and in science and had his, he overlapped a bit with, my philosophy Twitter circles. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And so I got interested in that partly because of course, part of my interest is in uh, non-traditional pursuits of intellectual life, non, uh, non-professionals who are interested. And the, the more of his stuff I looked at, you know, he has a very serious interest in um, biology and in science and in philosophy and their intersection. What is life? What is a living being? What is consciousness? Mm-hmm. These are three questions that he's interested in, and he reads some scientific papers and some more popular papers and some philosophy, uh, and clearly reads very widely and and very seriously. So anyway, I was interested in this. I started to track it, um, and uh, I think there may have been other interactions that he and I had uh, quite some time ago, not anything serious. So in December, he he put up a video of planaria which are um flatworms with remarkable regenerative powers mm. so mm. we we use them um in our laboratories at st john's where i teach ah. um we use them because we have this biology reading list where we think about questions about what a, what is a whole living being and what makes a whole a whole what makes a part a part uh, what is life? What kind of thing is it? What kind of features do living things have that non-living things don't? So it's a whole set of sort of philosophically oriented biology in the middle of which we do planaria. So he had this video up unmarked, just people cutting up planaria and the planaria <laughs> no words on it. But I instantly recognized it and got very excited. Uh, and so retweeted it with excitement and, um, I think he was impressed. I, I, he didn't tell me this. I think he was impressed that I recognized what Planaria were. <laughs> he, he listened maybe to one of my podcasts and then he listened to the book and then he really liked it. And uh, yeah, tweeted a bit about it some time ago. And then about two weeks ago, he uh, invited me on to, he has a series on Clubhouse called Conversations with MC Hammer. Uh, okay. okay. Uh, and so we had a conversation. It lasted four hours. <laughs> So, I love it. That's amazing. And it's partly his, uh, you know, he and his uh, co-hosts 
Um, they have a real spirit of hospitality um, where everyone who has a question, you know, they get to ask their question. You know, he also helps. He was on the West Coast. So it was a bit earlier of an hour uh, for them. But um, anyway, it's it's delightful. And I'm I'm thrilled to have um, someone who to me suits the themes of the book so beautifully. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. As this um, really non-typical intellectual who really is very serious yeah. uh, without any particular, so far as I know, any academic objective. I don't think he's going to publish a paper in consciousness. Yeah. He just wants to understand it. He wants yeah. to understand uh, what makes human beings special, what makes life special, where does it come from? And so, yeah, I'm, it's been a delightful, delightful connection for me to make. Um, I love that. I hope that, I mean, I would love it if we had more conversations. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I hope so too. He seems to be, um, <laughs> he seems to have other people he wants to talk to. Uh, <laughs> well, that's, that's, so, that's uh, anyway, yeah, that's one of the, one of the, yeah, weirdest, craziest and most fun things that's happened recently. I love that. That's great. That's great. I miss all this. I've been, uh, I took a break from Twitter myself for. That's wise. Always wise and good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, I, I think I, I made, I've, I'm agree with you. There's so many interesting people that I've met on Twitter and I found your book on Twitter and, um, I am planning to be back, but I also, I have to grow as a person sometimes too. <laughs> I get to. I mean, I think the status comes in for me sometimes, you know, like. Uh, oh, of course. Well, yeah. I, you know, I think what helps is to have a reason. So it's helped me not enough. I've still wasted tons of time on there. And mm -hmm. but um, it helps for me that, you know, I'm on there to, to promote a book. So that means yeah. every now and then I can dial myself back. I can say, well, you know what? I think the book will do just fine this week. If yeah. <laughs> don't go on Twitter for a few days, yeah. okay. Or, you know, if I start tweeting on something that's really outside of my wheelhouse, which is also the temptation, you, you know, you just start opinionating. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's really, you know, it's, it's stupid. It's like, why would anyone listen to what I had to say about, uh, I don't know, uh, the, uh, World Trade Organization. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, so, so, uh, yeah, that's how I, that's, that's how I, uh, have, that's what I found helpful. And that's, I think what's helpful in general for status concerns is what's the reason why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. Kind of try to stay oriented. You're, we're all human. Yeah. Like you can, never, it's not like you're going to wake up one morning and be like, I don't care about status anymore. No, no. Yeah, exactly. No, you're <laughs> right. But the, the, the discipline is just like, what's the good? Like, what's, what's the good? What am I what's searching the, what's for? the thing I'm aiming for? What's the goal here? What really well, matters here? You can learn a lot on Twitter, but you learn more from books. I mean, that's the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I'm talking to myself. I'm okay. not, you know, you're like, Oh wow. That was a really interesting conversation. But you know, the stuff doesn't stick as well. Right. It's no, yeah. The, so book, the, the book is a sustained argument. Of a, yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. It's good. Um, and, and this actually segues to one other question I would ask. Um, you've emphasized freedom of the, of the intellect. And this is, there was a one thing we go out to, to become an intellectual or to have an intellectual life. But you also talk about some uh, things leading to that greater flourishing and greater directionality. You mentioned this earlier in our conversation when it comes to repeating the car crash or 
Right. The curiositas thing. But um, I think even in the book, you think about things like serial killer TV marathons or, you know, never ending social commentary or this or that. And some people get very geeky about that stuff. Right. And right. that's a, that can be very fun. But you're you're pushing that uh, there there might be some pursuits that are actually more toward a, a self-development than others. Uh, and I know you wouldn't want to like lay out which those are, but like, how do you, how do you think about this? So that's a great question. Yeah. No, so I've all, yeah, apart from the politics stuff, I have gotten a little pushback for being snobby, which I, yeah, it seems a bit unfair to me, but I, I can see, <laughs> I can see what people are talking about. Cause I'm, I'm not, I do think that some materials for intellectual engagement are better than others. Mm-hmm. I think some books are better than others. I think, um, you know, so I think there are certain objects which are less amenable to it. So the the way I think about it is this. I don't want to be strict about it. It's a problem in a way that I work on throughout the book. You know, I took some care to do it um, because I think the way I'd put it is there's a sort of there are routes of inquiry which are conducive to learning for its own sake. So. Mm-hmm. Old grade books, for instance, that's what I teach. Um, they're very conducive to serious, deep conversations. They're not necessary and they're not sufficient. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can have very trivial, superficial, competitive, um, curiositas like conversations about them. And you can also get into the depths without reading them. You can look at nature. You can, for that matter, you can um, look at materials which are not particularly great. And if you're bringing a real zeal or seriousness to it, it can be very fruitful. Mm-hmm. So the, one of the examples I use in this is, is Dorothy Day, mm-hmm. um, who says late in life, um, you know, the thing that really mattered to me were books. And that's a kind of a shocking thing for Dorothy Day, who's an activist, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. who um, lived with the poor her whole life um, to say, oh, it was books. And um, some of those books were really good books. Dostoevsky is really great. Some of them, I think, were not. I mean, Upton Sinclair, for instance, is an author who, like, I don't think he's a great author. He's, he's kind of sensationalist, a little bit potboilery, a little agenda-driven. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of who she was and because she, she wanted to reach out to reality, especially the reality of the lives of the poor, she used those books to to encounter those realities and to guide mm-hmm. her life in a certain way. Yeah. And she always checked, you know, she always had, because she was interested in going out into the world from them, she had a kind of check on the vices of those books. She was able to, to, to get past what was superficial about them and get into something deep. So likewise, there's actually a, a philosopher I've gotten to know relatively recently named uh, T. Nguyen, a mm. T. and he, he works on, um, games, especially video games, as a form of creativity. Yeah. He's quite a serious person, I think. He's, he's really thinking about, for himself, about how these games might be like art. They might be a, a, a source of creativity, a means of self-expression that in some way is done for its own sake. And I believe that there are other people who use video games this way. I also think that video games can be 
kind of the paradigm instance of mere distraction, right? You, you know, the, the rules are set by someone else. The victory is determined by the game designer. You don't get to decide what victory is. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, they're designed to be addictive, right? You, you know, you, I, I got it next level. Okay. Next level, next level. You, you're, yeah. you're sucked in and sucked in and sucked in and sucked in. So it's, it is, I think in its nature is probably really conducive to, to something like curiositas, to the thrill seeking or distraction. But you, you don't have to use it that way. That's part of the ground of freedom in intellectual life. You don't have to use this. We, I was in a conversation actually just the other day in Mount Mercy University in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And yeah. one, of the, one of the faculty was talking about how she loved pop boiler mysteries mm-hmm. and that she'd read a bunch just for the sake of distraction. But that that the, all of those books, partly because the authors were, although they were writing potboilers, they were people who cared about the world and had an interest in it. Yeah, like people like Agatha Christie or Dorothy Sayers. You know, it's they're not again, they're not Dostoevsky, but they are people who cared about it. So that these had built up a resource for her to think about things. There were things that she learned about. Uh, there were examples of human interactions or human behavior. So so distractions can be taken up into serious endeavor. So it's it's not meant to be a, a strict judgmental distinction, like don't waste your time on X, Y, and Z. Yeah, yeah. But we have to be honest too with ourselves that we have tendencies to be distracted, to be late, to, to get locked up in ourselves and to not really do things that are serious that lead to our own growth and to learn. And we have to be honest about that. And we have to find for ourselves, you know, what are the things which bring that out in us and, and to nurture it in ourselves, honestly. And that's, that's not in the spirit of snobbery, but it is a spirit of like, come on, like everything's not the same. Mm -hmm. Uh, Don't, don't rationalize your distractions by pretending that they are, that you're really learning something when you're not. And that can cut both ways. That is, (laughs) you can use very serious so-called objects as distractions too. So you, you, it's the discernment of your motivations that really matters and knowledge of what, what is really fulfilling for you, what really helps you to grow, what really is, is where, again, where your life culminates. Uh, and that, that's, that's something to be determined ultimately by the person living their life. Yeah. yeah. So I, I just try to, to put out some guidelines, you know, and people can figure out the rest. Yeah. Well, that's that's wonderful. I um I like this. Um, I always use this phrase inappropriately. Not a sliding scale, but not a moving lens. Um, where's the intention and where's the where's the thing? Some things do tend toward this or that, but you right. can use it in other ways. Right. I like that. It's very helpful. But I wanted to ask you about your conversion. You talk about this at the beginning of your book. You you were a devout academic. <laughs> that's a well-turned phrase <laughs> and you had a conversion to uh, catholicism right how you you talk about this as, a, as being sort of the path to your vision and goal that you express in this book and your teaching which led you to a monastic life for a while and then back to teaching you you've written about this beautifully and i hope our listeners will read this. If you could just say a little bit about how your your devotion to the church and to and this conversion that's still working in you, how this has gone along with or grown up with this uh, vision for your book and for your teaching and for an intellectual life, broadly speaking. Sure, that's that's a nicely put question. Um, 
My conversion was itself not particularly intellectual. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't, I hear about these people sometimes who read Thomas Aquinas and have conversion experiences. I wasn't one of those people. I, I think that my experience was in, in a way a bit more like the one Augustine describes where you, you're immersed in this competitive intellectual environment. For me, it was academic philosophy. For him, it was the Manichaeans, you know, it's different, but it's, there's some similarities. Yeah. Uh, and you, you, you see a lot of ideas being tossed around by very intelligent people. And um, to me, it started to become clear that it wasn't a way to find what was true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in a way it is, and in a way it isn't. That is, there's nothing like meeting extremely brilliant people, people that are much more smart than I am, who really don't seem to, to have any wisdom or to, 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 to grasp some fundamental truths about life. That's, mm-hmm. So I think that was formative. I didn't re- recognize that was going on at the time, but I think it was. So that helped me to enter the church because I didn't, you know, I didn't have this, I also didn't have intellectual obstacles. I didn't think like, oh, who could, to some extent, like any human being, I think, oh, who could think, you know, every now, what, that, that doesn't make sense. I can't. But it wasn't particularly, my intellect wasn't any special obstacle. It was just common sense that was the, the ordinary human obstacle. Mm-hmm. So, so then I was a Catholic and also a philosophy professor. And, uh, and a lot of my early discernment was just trying to find ways to integrate them. And uh, honestly, it was very difficult. Yeah. And I think that's partly, I'll just say this, because this is something that your, your audience might be interested in. Uh, there is a problem. Uh, as far as support for intellectual women in the church, like it's mm. not something, there are not a lot of pathways um, and it's not something that's widely supported. So that was part of my struggle was, well, okay, <laughs> there's Dominican friars <laughs> or Jesuits. <laughs> Where's, what does, what do I do? I can't become a Dominican friar or a Jesuit. So, and that was also part of the the search for the monastic life was a way of of really living my faith and living an intellectual life. And I tried tried various permutations. What I what I think I um, the the insight that I am working from right now, which is of course just an insight, it could develop and change and grow and get overturned or whatever. The insight I had was that intellectual life is a human good and it's good for human beings mm. is what we'd call as Catholics, a natural good uh, <laughs> and grace builds on nature. Uh, oh. So just as it is a, a form of Christian service to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, etc., It's a work of Christian service to cultivate one's own intellect and to help others to cultivate theirs and to do so in Again, in a spirit of Christian Christianity, is 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 does teach human freedom, mm-hmm. and that freedom is subtle. And freedom is a hard word because it's tossed around a lot and it has a lot of different meanings, and it can mean things that are bad and blah blah. I think I also grew over time to see um, how much Christianity respects the 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 quirks and the ingenuity and the the creativity of individuals, and the you know, lives of the saints are great resources for this you know we see very very quirky people (laughs) who you know who who gave everything they had to god so so that's something like my insight and i i I think what i my hope is twofold and that's in a way the book is directed in two ways it's directed at a 
secular audience in part in the hopes that by encouraging this human good mm-hmm. that you again you build the natural goods and grace builds on nature so you're you know you're doing you're doing a service for the secular world but also in the direct to the extent that I'm talking to Christians and I think actually truthfully the book has resonated most with Christians so mm-hmm. it, it has a it has a, a beautiful secular audience I'm very grateful but most of the people I hear from uh, are, are Christians of one kind or another. So um, that I think that my hope was to give them the sense that this, that you can be a full human being and a Christian. Like you don't, you don't have to, Christian intellectual life does not have to be this rule bound, rigid thing. We have to be discerning. We have to be careful. We have to be grounded in faith. We have to be grounded in prayer, grounded in the sacraments. I'm, I'm in fact, very traditional Catholic in most ways. Mm-hmm. But, it, but the, the one way in which I'm not is that I think that you have to deeply trust that your mind, if, you're, if your faith life is in order, some kind of order, if your prayer life is in order, if your connection to the sacraments is in order, that you can, you can let your mind do what it does mm-hmm. and throw yourself in the mercy of God and and uh, let your just just trust, uh, and that's I think a lot of what Christian intellectual life is is lacking now is this kind of deep trust. Partly because of the host- there's hostility in the culture, and there's pressure from all these directions, and mm-hmm. you know, so people get defensive. D- d- don't be defensive. Just, just yeah, throw your intellect at the mercy of God, I guess, and and let it do what it's going to do. I love that. So, and don't d- don't deprive yourself of all the riches of human experience um, out of fear. That's, mm-hmm. that's not what we're supposed to be doing. Nope. That's my, that's my take on you know, how my work re- relates to my conversion. Thank you. That's beautifully said. Thank you. That's gonna, we are, um, I'm sitting in a class taught by um, the president of the school here, Stephen Lachlan, who's a Thomas philosopher. Mm-hmm. And we're reading in this class, um, the students are reading and I'm reading along with them, um, a bunch of works by Joseph Pieper, mm-hmm. who wrote the uh, Leisure of the Basis of Culture, which is uh, resonant with your work in many ways. Um, but also about a bunch of his other works explaining Thomas. And um, this is something he returns to over and over like this, his irritation with any casuistry and his like you've got to be a person who goes out and lives from yourself and um it's not a a brittle system of obligations it's a it's an adventure you know yeah um well it's something alive that would be another way of putting it right it's it's a way of life yeah Mm -hmm. it's it's not a prison yeah yeah well, thank you, uh, Zena. This has been lovely. I really appreciate your time. And uh, this has been very helpful for me. Uh, so I really I can't stress that enough. So I really appreciate it. Thank you for being on our show. Beautifully writing. This is another, is um, taking ideas and writing them so clearly and beautifully and poignantly. Thank you very much. I'm very so well glad to be with you.